You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe, The Human Being, Image of Creation, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 10. To understand the world without understanding man is impossible. That is the net result to be derived from our studies here. And for that very reason, I wish today to contribute a little more to an understanding of man. Let us then start from the disparity between the organization of the head and that of the limb realm, a subject on which we have already frequently spoken here. First of all, I would remind you that the head organization, as it appears in the life between birth and death, is the outcome of all those formative processes which have been at work from the previous death to the earthly embodiment of this present life. From this we must conclude that everything connected with the head organization does not follow those laws and forces to which we are adapted as earthly beings. Through the bodily organization, which we receive in this particular incarnation, we are adapted to earth life. We have spoken a little of how this manifests. We complete one cycle of taking nourishment and digesting it every 24 hours. Thus the cycle of nourishment and digestion is related to the movement of the earth in 24 hours. Something is accomplished in us that, as it were, resembles what the earth accomplishes within the universe. But our head is something whose organization we more or less bring with us at birth. Therefore the head is primarily adjusted not to earthly relationships, but to such as are really from beyond the earth. The head is thus in a peculiar situation in relation to the rest of man. A comparison may serve to make clear the situation of man's head, during the early epochs of his life on earth. Suppose we were on board a ship. A ship makes various movements in different directions. If we have a compass, we see that the position of the magnetic needle does not follow the movement of the ship, but points always to the magnetic north pole. It is independent of the movements of the ship. In fact, the ship's movements can themselves be guided by the constant position of the magnetic needle. In a sense, it is the same with the human head. Man does many things in the physical world with the rest of his organism. The head, in a sense, has no part in what he does in earthly life. Its inborn forces are always organized in accordance with the super-earthly. It is a very important fact that we have in the human head something organized in relation to what is super-earthly. Nevertheless, there is always an interaction 
between the organization of the head and that of the rest of man. This interaction is only gradually brought to completion in the course of the time that passes between birth and death. The head, as we receive it from the super-earthly worlds at birth, is organized primarily for the life of ideation. It is in a sense so constructed that the life of ideas can use it as an instrument. If it were to develop only on the basis of the forces which it receives on leaving the super-earthly worlds, it would develop solely as an organ of ideation or thought. Our connection with the world through the head organization would in course of time be entirely lost. We should, as it were, so pass through earthly life with our consciousness as to develop ideas alone by means of the head, that is, no more than pictures of earthly life. We should become more and more conscious of extending beyond our earth-related organization, of extending beyond it with our head, as though, through our head, we were beings who were strange to the earth and developed only pictures of all that is connected with earthly life. This is not so, and precisely for the reason that the rest of the organism sends its forces into the head. If we inquire into the quality of these forces, which from childhood onward are more and more directed from the rest of the organism into the head, if we wish to describe them, we must look for them particularly in the forces of will. The rest of the organism is continually impregnating the thought nature of the head with will forces. Thus we can say, in effect, speaking diagrammatically, that we acquire the head as the bearer of ideas, as the result of the foregoing incarnation, while the will forces are sent into it from the rest of the organism. What has just been said takes place not only in the life of soul, but shows its effects in physical terms too. Inasmuch as we bring head forces with us, we are born in this earthly world as beings of thought and ideation, and the forces of ideation are at first very powerful. They ray out from the head into the rest of the organism, and it is they which, during the first seven years of life, enable the forces which manifest in the second dentition to work out of the rest of our organism. These same forces consolidate in us also the life of thought, which is not consolidated until we acquire the second teeth. They are the actual forces which produce the teeth, so that when we have the teeth these forces are set free and can assert themselves in the life of ideas. They can then form clearly defined concepts and build the power of memory. Clearly outlined ideas can begin to find a place in our thought. As long, however, as we are employing these forces in the formation of the teeth, they cannot show themselves as true consolidating forces in the life of ideas. As we grow beyond the seventh or eighth year, the will which is essentially bound up with our lower realm and not with the head, begins to manifest. And now comes the time when it would, as it were, shoot its forces up into the head. This cannot, however, come about so easily, 
for our head, which is organized in relation to what is super-earthly, would not be able directly to receive these strong forces which try to ascend from the metabolic system as a vehicle of the will. These forces must first be stemmed. They must make a halt until sufficiently filtered, toned down, given more of a soul character to make their influence felt in the head. This halt is made at the end of the second seven-year period, when the will forces are arrested in the organization of the larynx, for that is the way they manifest. In the male organization, they suddenly break forth in the change of voice. In the female organization, they manifest differently. These are the will forces coming to a standstill, as it were, before they reach the head. Thus we may say that at the end of our second seven-year period the will forces are arrested in the speech organization. At that time they are sufficiently filtered and sold, in quotes, to make their influence felt in the head organization. Having reached the age of puberty and the change of voice which runs parallel with it, we have reached the point when through the head the faculty of thought and ideation can work together with the will. Here we have an example of how our spiritual science can give real insight into actual phenomena. The abstract philosophies which make their influence felt in modern times, Schopenhauer's title The Will as World as The World as Will and Idea, for instance, all remain abstract. Schopenhauer took pains to describe the world in its ideal character on the one hand and its will character on the other, but he remains merely abstract. So also does Edward von Hartmann. They all remain abstract. To be concrete is to observe how through these two stages, at the first and second seven-year periods, idea and will meet in quite definite and distinct ways in the cosmic system of the human head. The essential thing is that we can point to the way soul and spirit manifest, and at the same time how, in the outer physical world, the forces of the head sent forth to the body manifest in the forming of the teeth. These work together with the forces of the body ascending into the head, which prepare themselves through first arresting themselves in speech and only then shooting into the head to become true soul will. Thus we must understand human development and look at what actually goes on in man. I have said that the human head is no more adjusted to our earthly circumstances than is the magnetic needle to the movements of the ship. The needle is independent of them and the human head is in the same way independent of earthly circumstances. Here we have something which gradually leads to the physiological concept of freedom. Here we have the physiology of what I have set forth in my title Philosophy of Spiritual Activity, readers aside also known as Philosophy of Freedom, also known as Intuitive Thinking as a Spiritual Path, and the readers aside. Namely, that one can only understand freedom by grasping it in sense-free thinking that is to say, in the processes taking place in us 
when we direct pure thinking through our will and orient it according to certain defined directions. So you see how one can gradually come to a real investigation of the mutual relationship between soul-spiritual and physical nature, and how the process of speech development can be really understood by conceiving of it as a product of two sources supplying the human being, those in our head realm on the one hand and in the limb realm on the other. We can now experience more fully how impossible it is to say that some kind of communication of the will is carried from the brain through the motor nerves. The brain only derives its full power of volition from the rest of the organism. Of course, you are not to imagine this as if you could draw it in a diagram, but the process that in a certain sense arrests itself in speech development is something arising earlier, which goes through the whole of life, and whose most characteristic features only appear at special times of transition. Thus we must understand clearly how man is adapted to both an earthly and a super-earthly life. He is adapted to earthly life in such a way that he does not bring to conclusion in his purely natural organization certain forces which the animal does bring to their conclusion. The animal is, as it were, born ready-equipped for all its functions. Man has to be taught to acquire these functions for himself. What thus takes place in man is really only an outer expression of something that takes place in him organically. If we study the metabolism of the animal correctly, we find that it goes further than that of man. The metabolism of man must be held back at an earlier stage. What in the animal is carried to a certain stage must in man be arrested at an earlier stage. Superficially expressed, man does not carry digestion so far as the animal. The digestive process ceases earlier. He retains, through this arrested digestion, forces which become the vehicle for what he sends to the head through the will. As you see, human nature is complicated, and if one does not wish to take the trouble, really, to study its complexity, why, then, one arrives at a science such as we have in the external science of today. One does not arrive at the real nature of man. The essential nature of man will only be revealed when spiritual science is allowed to illuminate natural science. If, however, man is organized in the way I have described, and the connection between man and the extra-human world outside him is as we have described it in these studies, then you will see that the extra-human world can only exist for man if it has a certain resemblance to him, to his organization. We have seen that our limb realm adapts us to earthly relationships, but that through the head organization we remove ourselves, as it were, from earthly relations, like the ship's compass on the ship. Now something of this kind must take place also in the extra-human world. There must, for instance, be something in the planetary movements that corresponds to the adaptation 
of our human limb nature. Something must, therefore, lift itself out beyond earthly conditions. There must be something that does not belong. How does modern natural science study man? It studies him as though he had no head. Of course, it studies the head too, but how? As a kind of appendage to the rest of his organism. What natural science produces for the comprehension of human nature is only suited for explaining the part outside the head, not the human head itself. That can be understood only in terms of the spiritual world. I might have used the following comparison. I might have said, I have already spoken of it recently, that the human head sits upon the rest of the human organism as people sit in a railway carriage. They take no personal part in the movement. They sit still and allow the carriage to move. In the same way, the human head sits at ease. It regards the rest of the organism, which is adapted to the outer world, as its coach and allows itself to be carried. It is itself organized for a very different world. And this must correspond to something in the outer world also. A natural history of man, such as we have today, really speaks of a headless man. It does not understand his true nature at all. And an astronomy constructed on the same principles would not correspond to the whole super-earthly world, but only to a certain part of it. The other part not included under this aspect is not considered at all. As a matter of fact, the trend of natural science for the last three or four centuries has been such that it deduced the movements of the universe without taking a certain content of this universe into account, just as the rest of natural science disregards the human head. Therefore, astronomy has derived forms of movements such as, quote, the earth revolves in an elliptical path round the sun, close quote, which are as little correct for the universe as the natural science of today is for man's whole being. They do not correspond to the actual facts. Hence, we must so often point out that the Copernican view must be made fruitful through spiritual science. Many mystics and theosophists, too, are fond of preaching that the world of senses around us is, in quotes, maya. But they do not draw the ultimate logical conclusion. Otherwise, they would have to say, quote, even the world of the Copernican system, this movement of the earth around the sun is maya, is an illusion, and must be revised, close quote. For we must realize that it contains something which can no more be recognized in terms of the hypothesis employed by Copernicus, Galileo, or even Kepler, than the whole nature of man can be understood through modern scientific principles. Now, when we come to discuss a subject like this, we must at the same time point to something which has already taken place in human evolution. If we call to mind what we have often said, that in olden times there was a kind of primeval wisdom of which man had but a dreamy atavistic consciousness, but which in its content far surpassed what we have since acquired, if we remember all this, we shall not find it difficult to bear in mind also 
that the worldview which was held in olden times was quite different from any cosmology possible today. For what was the cosmology of our forefathers, that is, of ourselves, in our former earth lives? What was it? The cosmology that man had in those times consisted far more than it does now in what he brought into the world at physical birth. We may still find in children, if we understand how to observe them aright, something like a picture of the world in which man lived before descending to physical life. In later life, however, and indeed from quite an early stage, this picture vanishes. In olden times this picture endured. What existed in earlier epochs of spiritual evolution as an astronomical description of the solar or planetary system and its relation to man was something man felt within him, although he experienced it in a dreamlike state. Today we look back upon those times of our ancestors with a certain arrogance, yet they were times when we really knew there was something within ourselves that had a connection with Mars, Mercury, and so on. That was part of the inner consciousness of the human being. It disappeared, however, as man evolved further. In primeval times, he not only saw the outer constellation, but felt within himself an inner constellation, an inner cosmic system. Not only did he perceive a cosmic system outside him, but in his own head, which today is merely the vehicle of the, shall I say, indefinite life of ideas, there within shone the sun with the planets circling round. In his head man carried this cosmic picture, and it had an inner force which worked upon the rest of the organism and influenced what he received at birth, or rather at conception, from earthly forces. The rest of man's organism was influenced and drawn into this adaptation to the planetary forces. And now we can carry the thought a little further. Man is born into this world, and as a heritage he receives, let us say, in the first place, the power to acquire his teeth, the milk teeth. These develop roughly within the first year. The second teeth need seven times as long. They are brought forth by the human organism itself. This points to the, in the deepest sense to the fact that a certain rhythm which we bring with us at birth and which relates to the yearly revolution is slowed down by seven times in our earthly life. By seven times is the yearly revolution slowed down. And this is expressed in the fact that man has introduced into his division of time the relation of one to seven, day and week. The week is seven times as long as the day. This is an expression of how something takes its course in man which goes seven times slower than what he brings into physical existence at birth. Man will not understand the actual processes in the human being until he is able to see quite clearly and exactly how something within him, which, as it were, is brought with him from conditions outside the earth, has to be slowed down by seven times during the earthly period. Ancient mystery teaching 
spoke much of these facts. If I were to express in our language what the old Hebrew mystery teachings, for example, said from their atavistic knowledge of these matters, I should have to put it in this way. Jehovah, who is the true earth God, who added the earth organization to that of Saturn, Sun, and Moon, has the tendency to slow down seven times what comes from the Moon organization. In relation to the course of the earth, something in the human being wants to go at accelerated speed. I might even say that the old Hebrew mystery teacher said to his pupils, Lucifer runs seven times as fast as Jehovah. This points to two movements, two currents in human nature. These two currents also exist in super-earthly nature, only there they are present in a somewhat different form. The thought, however, which we here approach, is one not very easy to understand. We can perhaps gain insight into it by starting from social relationships and then subsequently returning to cosmic Tellurian relationships. I have often spoken in public lectures of something I should like to express here. When we contemplate the misery of the present time, we find the peculiar fact that the whole intelligence of modern humanity has developed in a way that is quite estranged from reality. It is a peculiar fact that in practical life we find more inefficient people than efficient. There is a good example of this in the fact that in the 19th century there was much discussion concerning the effect of the gold standard upon international economic relations. You can go through the parliamentary reports of that century and try to form an idea from them of what people then thought would be the result of monometallism the gold standard. They regarded it as something which would make free trade possible unhindered by imposition of duty. Throughout the united economic domains of the world this was predicted wherever the gold standard was extolled. What has actually come about? The imposition of duty. Little by little the actual relations have developed in such a way that everywhere duties have been imposed. That is the actual outcome. Judging superficially, one might say, well, those people must have been very stupid. But they were not at all stupid. Among those who had pledged themselves to the promotion of free trade by the gold standard were very able and clever persons. But they had no sense of reality. They reckoned only according to logic. They could not enter into the true circumstances and relationships any more than can our modern scientists comprehend the organization of the heart, liver, spleen, and so on. They make abstract theories and hold on to them. Although they are materialists, they remain rooted in the abstract. That is why such an occurrence is possible as that related to the fo- in the following anecdote, which is founded on fact and is really very illuminating. In a certain scientific academy there was a physiologist, a learned man, who developed a theory about the varying length of time particular birds can fast. He drew up a beautiful schedule. He had large cages of birds placed in his corridor, and he starved those birds to ascertain how long they could live without food. 
He registered the times and obtained some lovely big numbers as a result. He elaborated these in a paper which he read at a meeting of the Academy. Now in the same house there lived on the floor above another physiologist who did not apply the same methods. After the learned treatise had been read, he rose and said, quote, I must unfortunately object that these figures are not correct, for I had such pity on the poor birds that I fed them in passing. Close quote. Now things do not always have to happen just like this. This is an anecdote, but it is founded on fact, and really much of the material underlying our exact science has been obtained in a similar way. Someone in the background has, quote, fed the birds, close quote, instead of their having starved as long as the schedule showed. If one has a sense for reality, one cannot very well work with statistical methods of that kind. They do not hold out much promise. But this sense for reality is wholly lacking in modern humanity. Why is this so? It is due to a certain necessity of the evolution of humanity, and we can understand the matter as follows. Picture it to yourselves in this way. The man of ancient times looked into this outer world. By means of all that he bore within him, he viewed the relationships and connections of the world outside. He also formed his theory of the stars out of his own inner stellar system. He had, quote, a sense for reality, close quote, and he carried it in his senses. This sense for reality has disappeared in the course of man's evolution. It will have to be developed again. It will have to be developed to the same degree inwardly as it formerly was outwardly. We must really cultivate this sense for reality in our inner being by the training we receive in spiritual science. Only then shall we be able to develop it in the world outside. If man were to keep straight on evolving in the modern intellectual way, he would at length be quite unable to perceive what is going on around him. And then it could easily happen that while the cry, quote, free trade is coming, close quote, goes up, in reality customs restrictions will be established. Something similar is continually happening in the various domains of so-called practical life. What happened then on a large scale happens today in small things everywhere. The, in quotes, practical person predicts one thing, the opposite happens. It would be interesting to keep an account of what practical people predicted as certain to happen during the last years of the war. Always the opposite came about, especially in the later years, precisely because people no longer had any sense for reality. This sense, however, can arise in no other way than by developing it within us first. In future times no one will be considered a practical man or a thinker attuned to reality who disdains to educate his inner being through spiritual science, in a manner in which the outer world cannot educate us today. We must carry into the world outside what we develop within. Hence the need for spiritual science, for people cannot determine the relation of the heart to the liver if they do not first acquire the method to do so by means of a training in spiritual science. In former times people could say, the heart is related to the liver somewhat as the sun to Mercury in the outer world.
and man knew something of how this relationship of the sun to Mercury was drawn from the supersensible world into the sense world. This is now no longer understood, nor can it ever be thoroughly understood, if the foundation, the basic impulse for this comprehension, be not acquired from within. It is not through clairvoyance alone that man can make it his own. By clairvoyance the facts of spiritual science are investigated, but man acquires this sense when he enters with his whole thought and feeling into what has already been discovered by clairvoyant methods and regulates his life accordingly. That is the essential point. What is of importance is to study the conclusions of spiritual science, not to satisfy a curiosity for clairvoyance. That must be emphasized again and again, for in the whole development of human culture, this application of the methods of spiritual science to outer life and to the knowledge of the wider world, the world outside us, is of quite special importance. When we consider what we thus have to regard as our original head organization, when we consider it in the course of our life, we see how it gradually becomes permeated with everything in our organization that is adapted to the outside world. Thus we must learn to understand the world outside man through man's own organism, through our human limb organization. And there only and there only such things as I have already hinted at can help us. I have shown the contrast that exists between our waking and sleeping conditions. These are contrasting conditions, and when one condition passes over into the other, that is to say when we wake up and when we go to sleep, then we pass through a kind of zero point of our existence, a sort of needle's eye, E-Y-E. The moment of awaking and the moment of falling asleep must have something to do with one another. This indicates that if we try to turn man's daily cycle into a geometrical figure, we can employ neither a circle nor an ellipse. For if we were to ascribe to the sleep condition one part of the ellipse, the conditions of awaking and falling asleep would be sundered, and this cannot be. We shall see how even in outer appearance they present a similarity and cannot be sundered. Thus we cannot draw the geometrical figure which is to correspond with man's daily round in a circular form, nor in an elliptic form. We can only draw it as a looped line, a lemnus gate. When we say that man falls asleep passing from the waking condition into the sleep condition, then with the lemnus gate it is possible to show him coming out of sleep again, passing through the same point, and then we have a curving line which truly corresponds to the daily course of human life. There is no other line for the daily course of life than the lemnus gate, for no other line would lead our awakening through the same point as our falling asleep. There is more than this. If we give attention to human development, in childhood especially, we have to say, we wake up virtually the same as we went to sleep. But, if we rightly observe life, we cannot exclude the sleeping condition from human life as a whole. We instruct our children during the day. Out of all we bring to the child, much of it is not his at once, but becomes so only the next day, 
after the ego and astral body have passed through the night condition. Only then does the child duly receive what we have given him by day. We must always have this in mind and regulate our teaching and education accordingly. Thus, in regard to the alternating condition of day and night, we can say we sleep and, on awaking, return to the same place where we fell asleep. But, in regard to human development, we shall have to say we advance a little each time. In a different sense, we progress. Hence, we may not draw the line quite as a lemnus gate, but in such a way that we return to waking life a little further on, and so attain a progressive lemnus gate. Thus, when we observe the alternating conditions of waking and sleeping and continue the development, we obtain a spiral. This spiral is ultimately connected with our evolution, and our evolution, again, is connected with the whole cosmic system. Therefore, we must seek this same line as the basis of the movements of the universe, If, instead of abstract geometry, man had applied concrete geometry to celestial space, the concrete geometry that proceeds from a study of the whole human being, he would have arrived at something different. For in ancient wisdom one had this line, there's a picture, and one did not speak of Mars as moving along any other kind of line than this one. Gradually it was all forgotten. Man began to calculate instead of knowing What was the result? People could no longer continue along this kind of line. Instead, they took this line and set circles upon it, another picture, and acquired the epicycloid theory. The Ptolemaic theory is the last remnant of ancient primeval wisdom. Copernicus further simplified it, and modern astronomy still bases its speculations on that today but in such a way that it much prefers to consider ellipses and circles than that inwardly alive line which presents an advancing spiral. Then people wonder what their observations, excuse me, then people wonder that their observations do not agree with their calculations and that fresh corrections continually have to be made. Reflect how the whole theory of relativity has been constructed on an error in Mercury's period of orbit. But people attempt to correct this in a different way than would have been the case if one had gone back to man's relation to the whole cosmos. Of this, more in the next lecture. The end of Lecture 10.